Welcome to The Bit and to our mini-series, Sustainability, Our New Standard, where we explore the ways sustainability and climate change in particular will transform investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. Today, we'll focus on one area of sustainability, impact investing. Impact investments aim to deliver progress on environmental and social goals in addition to financial returns, doing well while doing good. That might sound a lot like ESG or environmental, social, and governance investing. How is it different? You'll have to listen to find out. Joining us today is Eric Rice, head of impact investing for BlackRock's Active Equities. We'll talk about how impact investing differs from other forms of sustainable investing, the attributes that define an impact company, and how businesses have pivoted in the face of a global pandemic and the focus on social and racial inequities. Eric, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Mary Catherine. Very nice to be here. Thank you. So throughout our mini-series on sustainability, we've talked a lot about ESG, or environmental, social, and governance investing. Your role and part of your career has been in impact investing. Can you just explain what impact investing is and how it differs from ESG investing? I think the simplest way of thinking about that difference is that ESG is about how companies do what they do, and impact investing is about what they do. So we're all thinking about how they treat their world. But ESG is about how any company operates. Is it good to its environment? Is it good to its stakeholders? Does it have good governance? And any company could be a great ESG company. But an impact company is a company that makes goods and services that are actively solving the world's great problems. And of course, if done properly, an impact investing strategy should involve ESG integration. It should also involve the kind of negative screening. No one wants to see a gun maker in an impact strategy. Of course, that would never be a solution to a big world problem. But you know what I mean is that impact investing is like a 2.0 here. It includes other aspects of sustainability. And it also includes engagement with the company. That is such a helpful way of thinking about it, that ESG is about how a company does what they do and impact is about what they do. And so I guess from that perspective, what activities then make a company an impact company? What criteria are you looking for to qualify as impact? The starting point is this thematic area. Are they doing something good for the planet or good for our society? And the planet side, it could be cleaning up the environment or doing renewables or making things more efficient. On the people side, it's quite a range. It's from access to education, healthcare, it's digital and financial inclusion, it's better health, better safety, security, all sorts of things that are the identified big problems of the world. You want companies that are advancing those solutions to problems. Two other criteria are important for us. One is called materiality. Materiality means that it should be most of what the company does. So we don't want a company that is dabbling in do-good, but at the same time, they're just making chairs and steel like every other company might be doing. The second thing is that the company should be additional. And that's really interesting. That means that the goods and services of that company should have either a new technology or a new business model, or be bringing those goods to a new population that hasn't had them before. So it's additional in the sense that if it weren't for that company and what it's doing, that problem wouldn't be addressed. 
So with those criteria in mind, what are some of the more exciting opportunities that you're seeing in the world stock markets right now? It sounds like you're asking me if I have a favorite child. Do I like financial inclusion or do I like environmental cleanup? And I can't tell you that. That's not fair because we have lots of exciting things going on. But I would tell you, I think more relevant for right now is that we're at a moment on the financial side when some of the most unloved stocks this year that never recovered after the March downturn are starting to look interesting. And we're starting to see that they have the prospect of going into 2021 with some recovery and some strength. So like the most terribly beaten down, high efficiency buildings and building systems and materials, they never recovered, most of them. I think what we're learning is that the companies are telling us, the management's telling us that they're starting to see business come back. We have, of course, online education, those rallied, but we have some in-person education companies in emerging markets Those have done really poorly, but those too are starting to show signs of recovery and signs of M&A activity. And that's encouraging and exciting. And then a lot of healthcare has done well, but some of it hasn't because elective surgeries have been put off. So many things have been put off just to make room for COVID-19 activity. And so now that there's a little bit of breathing space, we think that that's going to be a 2021 opportunity. On that note, of things being put off to handle COVID-19. How have you seen companies pivot in the wake of this crisis, as well as around unrest, around racial inequality? I use exactly that word, to pivot. I think one of the reasons that some impact strategies did really well this year is because we have companies that were not necessarily producing the goods and services that would naturally be a solution to COVID-19, but they were just because they're problem-solving companies, they did pivot to solve some of these problems. Some examples are in healthcare, we have one medical devices company that never produced a ventilator in its history. But when COVID-19 came along, they're very good at tinkering with things. They came up with a substitute that's used in the U.S. and many countries that is not exactly a ventilator, but it serves the purpose of a ventilator only at 95% less cost. So they've been pumping out thousands of these and they've been going to hospitals around the world. We also have a mass notification company. And what that means is if there's a flood, they notify of a flood to the employees, if it's a company that's the client, or to the citizens, if it's a country. And now what do they notify? They notify people about COVID hotspots or changes in the rules around shelter in place. It's amazing. And companies that do education, they pivoted to distance learning. On the side of inequality, I think the pivot is really to more awareness and awareness among companies about getting their E and S more right. You know, that they have to improve in ESG even more urgently than before. And you see companies that are oriented to helping with inequality, financial inclusion companies. We have Brazilian university companies that are solving a problem there that's a problem of inequality for working class students. But it's less a pivot than the fact that a lot of these companies are always oriented to those kind of inequality issues. 
You mentioned 2021 opportunities. As you think about 2021, how does the upcoming U.S. election figure into your thinking as an investor generally, but also in terms of what impact-related opportunities it might present or infringe upon? So we saw an interesting thing in 2016, which was in November 2016, we weren't investing in making America great again in the sense that we were investing globally and we weren't invested in coal or petroleum or steel or old industries. We were invested in disruptors and solutions to problems and especially new kinds of technologies. And for some weeks after the election, that did badly. So I think that would be true in a Trump victory. And alternatively, I think in an election that resulted in Biden winning, a perception that the Green New Deal will go through, the kind of stocks that we'll invest in will do well. I think in an environment where there's a perceived respect for science and education technology, that this will be an opportunity for impact investors going out the gate. But our universe that we invest in has done well because It's a faster-growing universe. It's an inexpensive universe in terms of stocks because people don't really understand what it's going to be. And so I think year after year, there can be terrific performance no matter what happens politically. So one of the common views about sustainable investing generally is that it means sacrificing financial returns. You were a traditional investor. You've now been in the impact space for seven years. What's your perspective in terms of whether this focus on values can sometimes mean a trade-off in terms of value. I've been asked that often. I think there's a reality to it that there could be a trade-off, but I think there's a way to construct an impact investing strategy where there isn't one. And I'll tell you what our early insight was, that we had to separate the identification of what are high-impact companies. So we built out a universe. We have a universe of nearly 800 companies, and that's seven or eight trillion dollars of market cap. So it's a vast universe that we could invest in. And because we've identified them and set that high bar for impact among those companies, then what the team can do is just do conventional investing. We're doing the usual kind of stock selection and portfolio construction. If you separate the two out, and if your universe is good enough and big enough, why should there be a trade-off? Why isn't impact investing totally mainstream? Why doesn't every asset manager have an impact investing fund or team? And why isn't it part of everyone's portfolio? Well, that's a multi-part question. I think it's not everyone's interest among investors to do it. Just as investors are moving toward all portfolios being sustainable to some extent, I think you'll see some more movement. But this is... We talk about what we do as being a satellite kind of strategy. You might want to have exposure to steel makers and cola makers and whatever. That's not what's going to be in this portfolio. So it's necessarily a bit niche and it's necessarily going to deviate a bit from a benchmark hugging strategy. It just will. And so this is useful as another building block of one's allocation of assets. But it's not going to be a standalone. You're not going to replace everything in global equities with impact. It's just not like that. I'm curious, you used to be a diplomat and a World Bank economist. How did you become interested in impact investing? I suppose I might have been interested in it when I was 
a development economist, but it didn't exist. I'm old enough that I had to grow up in an older paradigm where if you wanted to do something good in the world, you would be a diplomat or a development person. And I actually ended up in finance because I took an extended leave of absence, a sabbatical, to go check out the financial industry after I'd been working in the financial crisis in Mexico. And I thought I would go back to the World Bank, but some other things started emerging, like social entrepreneurship and impact investment that I was finding fascinating, but that was all in the private markets. And so seven, eight years ago, I pitched the idea to my then employer that we should be able to do the same thing in the public markets. You know, it shouldn't be the case that only someone with a million dollars of investable assets can be an impact investor. Everybody wants to be. And so I was just driven by this idea that you could bring together the public markets and the private sector to the solutions that I was seeing being done at small scale in the private markets. And so given that you've said that you're part of an older paradigm, I'm curious then what paradigm you think we're in now and then what you see for the next 10 or 20 years for impact investing. I think there's a recognition when everybody looks at the scale of problems that we have that we're very much in a new paradigm where you say, okay, it's great, the government, NGOs, philanthropy, they all do important things of some size, but it takes everybody to solve these problems. And in particular, it takes the kind of technologies and market approaches that are in the private sector and that impact investors can bring to bear. So there's no going back at this point. And I think that that's going to be a very exciting thing over this period. I think also that public markets impact investing is here to stay and will become bigger. I think also we'll have regulatory changes so that retail investors and pension holders will be more permitted to invest with a view toward impact, just in the way that ESG is still in question in some places. And so I think that we will be moving to a world where everyone recognizes that sustainable investment is just investment and that impact investment is also alpha-oriented investment. When you say we'll move to a world where sustainable investment is just investing and impact is just another way to generate alpha in portfolios, it makes me wonder if then you think we'll have some standardization or just a shared understanding of how one measures impact. In ESG investing, for example, we constantly hear that we don't have standards and that makes it hard to compare products with one another. In impact investing, do you see us moving towards some kind of agreed upon approach to measuring performance or do you think that doesn't matter so much? It absolutely does matter. There was a handful of things that stand in the way of that transformation. There's been a lack of democratization, you know, bringing it to the public markets and so that if I have $100, I can invest in impact. There's been a lack of information and education. What is impact? I mean, even after all these years, people mean different things and people asking that question. And then, as you might have been alluding to, there's the lack of impact standards, when we started, there weren't UN Sustainable Development Goals to tell us some of the ways of thinking about what the big problems of the world are. That came later, and that's helpful, but it's not really a standard. And I would tell you that inadvertently, it facilitates greenwashing and impact washing. What's better is that on top of this, we have 
the impact management project and what's called the IFC operating principles for impact investing. And there's a taxonomy for impact goals, which is called IRIS+. Plus. All these things are setting up some standards. So it won't be that you'll see funds that say that they're impact funds, but they invest in fizzy drinks or ice cream makers or that they invest in your local water utility that's just been delivering water to your wealthy door the same way for the last many decades, but that it requires that these be companies behind which there's some theory of change and that these are actually companies that are not just aligning with the UN SDGs, but advancing the solutions to the problems. You mentioned the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and I'm curious if you could just share your view as to why it is that investors and their clients have become interested in mapping their portfolios to those sustainable development goals. They're essentially a set of objectives that the United Nations put forth to improve the state of the world, everything from ending poverty to ending hunger. And so they're ambitious and lofty, and you might not think of them as immediately tied to financial markets. So why is it that that's become a framework for thinking about impact? The UNSCG has been very useful, I would say, for catalyzing and mobilizing around the problems and what it would take to solve those problems. When we started, there weren't UN SDGs, and we came up with a set of social and environmental problems. And lo and behold, a few years later, when the UN did probably similar research, they came up with a quite similar set of problems. The thing is, though, it's not actually aligned with investors or in line with what companies do. For instance, they don't talk about financial inclusion or digital inclusion, or personal safety and security. Those are things that companies do. And so it's great, but it's a little bit misaligned. And so what we do is we look not to the 17 UN SDGs, the goals, but to the SDG targets, of which there are 169. And those tell you what the problems really are. And when you look at those, you can see why for a development agency or for a philanthropy, it really homes in on what needs to be fixed. And a lot of that translates to investment, but some of that we have to go beyond. We call it a little bit cheekily SDG+. If we're dealing with factory security or cybersecurity, that's not in the UN SDGs. So that's for us an SDG+, things that companies can bring a solution to and that we and our clients are about solving. We end each episode of our sustainability mini series with the same question to each of our guests, Eric. What's the one moment that changed the way you thought about sustainability? It's funny, I can tell you exactly when that was. And it was me a couple of years ago standing in the old neighborhood I lived in 30 plus years ago in Kigali, Rwanda. That's where I was a diplomat. And I was reminded of how people solve problems before that in my neighborhood, there were local folks and they live in the city. And if you live in the city, there's always someone back in the village who's sick. And so they would typically come to me to ask to borrow some money or give them some money for medicine. And then they'd buy some medicine and they'd take a jitney for days. Some of them would walk to go bring the medicine to whoever's ill in their village. And it's very cumbersome and inefficient. What struck me that day was 
how much has changed. Because what I saw on my walk through Kigali that day was a micro lender that we're invested in that meant that if someone's sick in the village, they will have called you on your cell phone. You can go to the micro lender to get a $10 loan to buy the medicines you need. You don't have to go travel for a week to bring the medicine. You tap your phone at the mobile money kiosk and it gets transferred to your family back in the village. And then if you're lucky enough to be in Rwanda, that's where they've had the trials of drone ports. And so a drone will bring the medicine to your village from a city and it's just all solved seamlessly. And I realized that sustainability, and for me it means impact investing, that these companies can actually solve problems so much better than in the old paradigm. And it was just a lack of imagination, a lack of experimentation that has taken us so far in the last decade. That's a compelling anecdote. I spent time myself working in Nairobi in mobile money. And I think that the way that that empowers economic growth and change was really stunning. So that resonates with me. Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure having you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances.
In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.